My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? Feel free to fast forward if you've heard this joke before. Three authors from three different countries have each written a book about elephants. The American's book is called Elephants for Fun and Profit, and it's a short, easy read with lots of pictures. The French author's book is called Discourse, Aesthetics, and the Elephant, and it's quite a bit harder to read than the American book. The German author has written three fat volumes collectively called An Introduction to the Study of the Elephant. And indeed, Karl Marx wrote three volumes of notes titled Theories of Surplus Value for the additional, much better known three volumes of Das Kapital. But even Das Kapital, or Capital in English, uh, even Capital is probably more admired uh, or reviled than actually read. And that's a shame because it remains the indispensable analysis of capitalism as a, quote, mode of production, as Marx calls it. To help us make sense of Marx's capital, and therefore of capitalism, Hadas Thier has just published the book A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics. Its fresh contemporary prose makes Marx's concepts more accessible without sacrificing their depth. In this episode, we discuss the continued relevance of the concept of surplus value, which occupies much of the first volume of Capital. Hadas Thier is a member of the New York City branch of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. She writes for Jacobin, In These Times, and other publications. Like many New Yorkers, she is also a mother struggling with issues of childcare and schooling during the pandemic. You know, you, uh, in, in your book, you lay out uh, the concept of surplus value uh, in, a, in a very accessible way. Um, and so before I ask you to sort of give us, you know, a, a, an explanation of surplus value, uh, I guess one, one question is just why, why is it important that, that we understand this? So why did Marx think it's important and why do you think it's important? In other words, why can't we just say, well, of course we know we're exploited in capitalism. I mean, you, if you have a job, you know it. Um, uh, and, and, and so, so why do we, yeah, why do we need to get into this, uh, kind of tricky concept. Sure. Well, I think, first of all, I would say that part of the beauty of Marxism is that a lot of it is very common sense. You know, you work and you can tell that you're exploited. Um, you know, Marx's concepts, as opposed to a, a lot of mainstream economics, really, um, I think, make sense of our actual lived experiences and that 
that is the the power of Marxism is that it is based on really our 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 lived experiences. And Marx was trying to explain reality in order to have the tools to most effectively change it. Um, so so I I think the fact that you know people say right I'm I'm exploited I go to work I think that's obvious um, that's a good sign that means that we're we're on the right track hmm. with with Marxism. Hmm. Um, but I think you know I think the concept of surplus value is really important. I think it's it's critical to understanding capitalism because it is the driver of capitalism. That it's it's a particular um, there's a particular form of exploitation that we see under capitalism, and it's important to understand. And the reason it's important to understand is that, you know, it, it has to, our understanding of our exploitation has to go beyond my particular workplace sucks, my particular boss sucks, um, Donald Trump sucks. I mean, there's any number of people that are awful, um, but that the problem with capitalism is an individual greed. The problem with capitalism is that the entire structure of it is based on having to extract surplus value and that bosses, uh, capitalists have to extract more value than what they've invested. Otherwise, it's not worth their investment. Mm. And that is the driver of all decision-making um, in terms of allocation of resources, in terms of what is and isn't invested in, is the question of whether extra value can be extracted at the end of the process. And, and the question of where that extra value comes from, um, you know, is, is obviously really central as well. Hmm. Um, okay. So, uh, so with that as motivation, um, which I, you know, I fully uh, agree with you, uh, on this, um, so, uh, you know, it's it's something that I think I understand fairly well, but I really like your way of putting it. And so, um, uh, and I'd love to hear it again. So, um, so yeah, if you can give us a sort of an account of uh, surplus value. Sure. So, so basically, like I said, you know, every time a capitalist enters into the production process, they do it with the intention and the expectation that they're going to extract more value than what they invested. So, you know, let's say a capitalist wants to produce a chair and they have, they invest a hundred dollars into the, the hardware and the equipment and the labor to make that chair, you know, they're expecting that they get $110 worth of value at the end of the process yeah. or something of that sort. Otherwise they're not going to put the money out. Um, you know, unlike previous uh, forms of exchange or like simple barter exchange, et cetera, the purpose of exchange under capitalism is to make more money. It's not oh, I have extra chairs and you have extra loaves of bread. <laughs> you know, yeah. I need bread. It's, that's a qualitative enrichment, right? But the purpose of capitalism is a quantitative enrichment. So the, the secret to their money-making um, is, is really this commodity of labor power and the fact that 
that our ability to labor has become a commodity under capitalism. Hmm. Um, and that it's a very special commodity because it produces more than it is worth. Meaning, um, you know, the value of our labor power, our ability to produce is paid out in a wage. Um, you know, that's what is considered the value of our labor power. But when we go into work, we produce more than our wage, more than what we are paid for, for our labor power. We enter into agreement with our bosses where they own our time. They own our full day. Um, they are, they own our ability to labor for that time. Uh, they don't, and then, and then they get, you know, the product of that, um, of, of that labor for the day. Hmm. They don't pay us for, um, you know, please produce a loaf of bread and I will pay you for that loaf of bread. They, they pay us for eight hours of bread making, for instance. So, um, the example that I use in, in my book, uh, because I think it's, it's a pretty easy one to get your head around, um, is let's say you work at Starbucks, they pay you $120 for your eight hour shift. Let's say that's the value of your labor power but you produce, you know, $120 worth of fancy coffees and lattes, et cetera, mm -hmm. in an hour, sometimes less. Um, but you can't just after that hour say, okay, well, you know, fair is fair. I've made you the money that you paid me and I'll see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. They own the full day of your labor. Um, so the rest of the six or seven hours or whatever it is, um, that you are there, you're working for free. That's, that's, uh, and that's where surplus value originates from. It's basically free labor. It's, it's a theft of our labor, uh, is, is how Marx would put it. Hmm. And, and so then it follows that there's an incentive to maximize that period of time where you're working for free. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they can do that in different ways. They can either do that by reducing your wages so that, uh, you, you know, let, if they pay you $100 instead of $120, then you can pay, you can make $100 worth of coffee faster than you can make $120 worth of coffee. Mm. But uh, they can also do that by extending your workday, which has been a longstanding battle under capitalism, or they can do that by ex just increasing your productivity so that you can produce more, you can produce $120 worth of coffee faster, hmm. uh, et cetera, different ways of, of doing it. Hmm. Um, and I noticed you mentioned, uh, you know, labor power a few times, and I know that's a concept that sometimes hangs people up. And of course, as you point out, Marx is at pains to distinguish between labor and labor power. So can you, can you say how that plays out in your example? Sure. So, so labor power, what Marx means by that is just, you know, the physical and mental exertion of, you know, the human body and mind to just produce and, um, Whereas labor in general, um, you know, I labor 
to make a loaf of bread. I have that's a particular type of labor that I've that I that I need in order to bake a piece, bake some bread. Um, but again, we're not paid for the goods that we produce or the qualitative form of our labor. The fact that we are making bread or we're making chairs or we're making you know doohickeys or whatever it is yeah. like we are just paid for um our our time for eight hours a day or whatever now there's variations in that of course there's um labor that's more or less skilled and part of what's happening there is that the value of your labor power increases because there is a labor that's gone into the production of your labor power meaning the um the education, the, the, the teachers that have taught you how to do the things that you're doing, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the capitalist is basically paying for different, gen, you know, extra generations of labor within, mm. within that, um, within that value. Uh, but the important point I think to distinguish is that, um, they're paying us for our labor power, but we are producing, our labor itself produces a totally different quantity mm. of value. There are two different, um, two different quantities there. And it's the difference that's the origin of surplus value. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you know, one uh, one reaction that that I perhaps one can have is that, uh, well, yeah, that clearly is exploitative and and sort of awful um uh, you know people were exploited before uh before capitalism and before surplus value became the be all and end all um so i mean is this is this worse than you know those other kinds of exploitation is it yeah i mean or is it does that question even is it even a meaningful question to ask like why should we fixate on on surplus value as a form of exploitation? Well, it's not that capitalist exploitation is worse necessarily than, than, than previous forms of exploitation, but it is more hidden. Hmm. And I think that a, a big part of what Marx was trying to do was to reveal the hidden dynamics from beneath the surface. So, you know, there have been different types of class societies throughout history, and they've been quite oppressive, some much more so than modern capitalism. Um, but I think, you know, first of all, the point should be made that class society itself is a relatively new phenomena in human history. There have been different forms of class society of which capitalism is the most recent, hmm. but in general, right, modern humans have existed for more than 200,000 years but class societies arose about 5,000 years ago. So we're talking about a small fraction of, of human society and that before class societies developed, I mean, there's a whole, most of human history, we lived in hunter-gatherer societies. Obviously they varied, but they tended towards much more egalitarianism than, um, than not uh, for various reasons. Um, but class societies are, that developed in the last few thousand years are inherently exploitative because 
they involve an upper class, uh, which is extracting uh, value from a lower class. And um, the point that Marx focused on is that capitalism, despite all its pretense of you know enlightenment and freedom and a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, all of these types of um, pretenses of capitalism, that the exploitation changed its form. Mm. It didn't uh, disappear. So whereas in feudal society, you had lords that owned their serfs uh, who worked the land, um, you know, they were essentially property the power relationship and the form of exploitation were really obvious. So, you know, the feudal lord had armies and they had weapons. And if you didn't hand over your goods to him um, or attempt, you know, if you, or if you attempted to flee, there would be physical consequences. Mm. Um, and there were different arrangements of how that could play out. Either, you know, you worked part of the week on your own land and then part of the week you were required to work on the, the lord's land or you were required to hand over a certain percentage of your crops. Uh, However, there were different arrangements of how that worked out, but it was very blunt and obvious. Mm. Uh, But under capitalism, it's this idea that, you know, well, we're all just individuals and some of us happen to be richer than others. And some of us, you know, employ, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and others of us, you know, have, nothing to sell, but our own labor. Um, you know, it just so happens that it's turned out that way. Um, but we're all, you know, on some level, even if there's an acknowledgement of the worst excesses of capitalism and, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon and poverty wages and, all the sort of stuff, you know, there may be some understanding of the worst excesses of it, but there's still a pretense that like, well, you know, Jeff Bezos is just a guy who, okay, maybe he should be taxed more heavily, but he, um, you know, earned that money in some way, just, and I'm just some person who didn't manage to earn that money yet, because I haven't, you know, figured out a really clever idea, you know, or, or or whatever the, the excuse is. Um, rather than we actually have classes in society. There's maybe a little bit of wiggle room. There's a few exceptions of people transcending their class, but, but overall there's a social relationship of exploitation that keeps me at my job, you know, and, and Jeff Bezos at, you know, in his position. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you were saying, um, I mean, I really like that sort of uh, characterization of the, uh, you know, the hidden quality of the exploitation. If, as you were saying, if, you know, if you're a peasant on the land, you know, you're allowed to grow a certain amount of food, you know, enough to feed yourself and your family. And then you can see what the surplus is. It's in front of you, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then it's, you know, some portion of that's, you know, uh, taken away and and it's very physical um um uh whereas with surplus value uh you know if you have a job that pays you know decently you can go home thinking that well that's you know i put in a fair day's work and 
I made good money and that's the end of it. And, you know, you don't see that exploitation right. as, as nakedly. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I would just add to, I mean, part of why I, I use things like the Starbucks example and part of why Marx talks about like splits up the day in such a way that you can see this is a part of the day that you worked in order to get back the value of your, of your wage. And this is a part of the day that you work for free is to try to make that more obvious. Um, and I, I, I used this Starbucks example recently on, um, on a book launch that we did virtually on, on YouTube yeah. and somebody wrote in, in their comments, I work at Starbucks and can attest to this. I make about $1,500 for the company in a five hour shift, but I only get paid 1145. So the, the, my mm-hmm. example was actually an underestimation of the amount of exploitation that takes place. It's, mm. um, it, you know, it's quite astounding. Mm. That that's actually a very powerful, concrete, um, uh, you know, even as a learning tool, uh, you know, uh, and and your book is is really good at doing this. But I've definitely found it just as soon as you give those real life examples, the things just sort of become clear. Um, mm-hmm. um, so you know, there's this kind of paradoxical quality to. Marx's sort of, um, you know, so on the one hand, this, uh, you know, the the, the extraction of surplus value is this sort of relentless engine, um, uh, you know, and at the same time, it's precisely because of that, that, you know, everything we see around us, you know, uh, the the tremendous advances and so on. So, you know, people were, uh, you know, as you said, even from the origins of class society, even though it's relatively new in human history, uh, you know, we, we had the creation of surplus and its expropriation, but there's something about f- capitalists continuously having to figure out how to maximize the surplus value that creates this explosion of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, productivity, technological advance, and so on. Um, so how do we square this, uh, you know, sort of this kind of uh, this dual, you know, Jekyll and Hyde kind of quality mm-hmm. um, of capitalism? How, how does Marx want us to, to think about this? Yeah, well, Marx uh, was very... It's very clear that capitalism does have this kind of revolutionary potential in terms of the forces of production. Um, that what we are see- what we see today in society is unprecedented in terms of not only the amount of wealth produced, which is clearly uh, historically unprecedented, but in terms of technological advance, in terms of, you know, for both good and bad, you know, we have nuclear weapons, sure. we have medical advances, um, you know, but capitalism does have that potential within it. Um, but the, the, the problem and the contradiction is that it, it has that potential, but it's towards what end, who controls where that potential goes. And 
the importance of understanding capitalism as a social relationship of exploitation of a, as a class society is that at the end of the day, who is it that has control over the uh, fruits of our labor? And who is it that has political control over not just in my workplace, what I've produced, but in terms of in society as a whole, the decision-making of what gets produced and towards what end and to who does it get distributed to? Mm. And, you know, the contradictions of it are insane. I mean, they're, they're just awful because, you know, you can see it uh, very clearly in terms of things like modern medicine, you know, that the health outcomes of, you know, through the pandemic have everything to do with your race and class, (laughs) you know, that here in, in New York, they had this they did this study, um, uh, the New York Times did one where it showed that in the richer, the hospitals that, that um, cater to a richer clientele in Manhattan have, you know, three times the survival rates as the public hospitals in the boroughs. Mm. Um, you know, Donald Trump is, you know, if you... <laughs> The, the kind of medical treatment that he's getting right now. Um, I mean, he, I, I saw some pictures of even his accommodations at Walter Reed, which mm-hmm. just made my blood boil. I mean, he has this luxurious multi-room suite, you know, while people in Brooklyn and Queens that were in the public hospitals at the peak of the crisis in New York were in, you know, in hallways on gurneys, like not left unattended for hours. Uh, The number of people that lost their lives simply because they, nobody came, you know, they needed to go to the bathroom and they waited and they waited and eventually they un- you know, they remove themselves from their oxygen to go to mm-hmm. the, use the bathroom. I mean, it was a common enough occurrence that they started, you know, tracking how often that kind of thing happened. And this is not because of the a lack of hard work, obviously, among uh, the nurses and the hospital staff, but because they're completely understaffed. So we have these like tremendous possibilities, but unbelievable brutality and devastation that's wrought by poverty by who has access to those things Um, or even just you know the question of the vaccines and the drugs that are being developed you know instead of having a international collaboration both in terms of the development of and in terms of the production and distribution of uh, drugs and vaccines we have a race and a competition and the richer countries will are already buying up, you know, stocks of vaccines. Um, you know, it's, this is going to be a, a complete, um, you know, just barbarity um, in terms of how this plays out around the world, even when, when a vaccine becomes available. 
yeah, I, you know, for sure. I mean, it's now become a, a cliche to to say this, but uh, you know, it's 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 true that uh, any any illusions one had about uh, you know the the role of uh, just yeah, just naked sort of advantage uh, in determining your chances mm-hmm. of survival and quality of care. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I know there are different, uh, there are even, people even mean different things by socialism, let alone, uh, you know, uh, what kinds of social surplus might be generated in a post-capitalist society. But can we speculate uh, if, um, uh, you know, so does socialism mean that uh, that we won't, let's say, that the person at Starbucks will actually stop working once they know that they have reproduced their, you know, their labor power and they just don't work beyond that? Or will we still be producing surplus, but the way it's sort of allocated uh, is, are we, are, we, are we going after that or are we sort of trying to just eliminate the extraction of surplus value in the first place? Yeah, I, I I think the latter. I think we, you know, when you don't have the ultimate goal, right, is to have a society that is not based on classes, uh, in which you don't um, you don't you don't need to extract surplus value because you know there isn't a person, there isn't one class of people that are extracting value from the labor of another class of people, Hmm. um, you know, which is what makes it extraction. Um, you know, what makes it surplus is that, you know, you have value produced that goes above and beyond what the capitalist is paid for the labor who's producing that value. So socialism would be organized completely, uh, would organize production completely democratically. Right. So those of us who are producing things, could then be in charge of what we've produced. Uh, and that's a very different kind of equation. No one's purchasing another person's labor power. We decide collectively as a society where we want resources allocated, including our own labor power. And then we apply those resources accordingly. Uh, and we organize you know, the distribution of goods and services democratically as well. So just to say, like, we would... I don't, you know, I don't know exactly how all this would play out, obviously. <laughs> and that's, you know, um, that is the job of the movements of people as we're creating a new society. It's not for us to predetermine ahead of time. But, but, the, but the basic concept of a democratically planned economy is that we vote democratically on resource allocation, for instance, you know, I would think during a period of a pandemic, we would shift our allocations so that almost everything is going towards health outcomes and vaccine development and, um, you know, putting in places the infrastructure to, to make the essential services that absolutely need to have happened, have happened. Um, and then we, you know, we organize 
uh, accordingly in terms of our labor power, how much labor power goes into, you know, producing uh, masks versus producing, you know, random like tchotchkes or whatever, <laughs> um, all, all sorts of, you know, I make pointing to an extreme example, but, but even outside of a pandemic, right, we would decide as a society how much of our collective labor, our collective work needs to go into healthcare versus um, production of arms and production of, you know, advertising and a whole bunch of really useless things that we would want to get rid of right away. Uh, and, and in that case, you know, it's not a question of like, does an individual Starbucks worker go home after an hour? But it's more of a question of how many hours do we really need to work in order to produce the things that are necessary and wanted in our society? And I suspect, you know, some people will still want their fancy coffees and that's fine. You know, we can produce fancy coffees. We know how to do that. But, you know, we may not need to have people working for 40 hours a week to produce fancy coffees. You know, we have enough people um, that everyone could put in um, a couple hours of work at a, a more menial job and then um, a couple hours of work at something that's more fulfilling to them or however, you know, we could break it out. I'm sure we can come up, humanity can come up with a lot of creative solutions. Um, but instead of it being an, an equation of how do we make sure that at the end of the process, we've produced more value than we've invested, the equation is completely flipped. It's, okay, let's start with a question of what needs to get produced, and then how do we organize society in such a way that we produce those things? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm sure we can do without the the you know f fancier sort of uh, coffee drinks, uh, uh, but you know, socialism or no socialism, uh, I I bet a lot of people will still want their coffee. <laughs> That's fine. We'll produce it for as long as people want it. <laughs> I don't want to go on record as having saying socialism means you can't have your coffee. That's, God that's, forbid. <laughs> that's that's right. Um, uh, so you know, maybe uh, we can sort of uh, uh, kind of close the circle by getting out of surplus value a little bit. And I know, I know you're, um, uh, you know, you're sort of at the epicenter of this uh, really basic problem that that's been exposed now in terms of um uh you know people having to those who ha who can still work you know having to work and take care of their their children at the same time as the teachers who are also workers um you know have to deal with whether they can do their job safely and so on um so how how can we play this out in a so let's say we had the kind of society where we were able to kind of democratically make these decisions um and we still had this uh you know this this terrible sort of contamination um uh so so what kinds of sort of outcomes would we would we want to see uh, in in that kind of situation? 
Yeah, I think, you know, that's a great question. And I think it helps to pose really clearly what, um, why it matters, you know, what economic, economic political system you live under in terms of how, um, how it's organized and towards what end. Um, I mean, certainly, I think the um, extent of devastation being wrought by the pandemic, it would be a different situation even to begin with because, you know, and other other um, folks have spoke, you know, have written really well about this question of uh, people like Rob Wallace and Mike Davis about the ways that agribusiness has set us up um, to us in a situation where we have more zoonotic diseases that we wouldn't have been susceptible to otherwise. And so that's, that's a whole other question, um, which frankly, you know, other people can speak to better than I can, but, um, but I, you know, I think, and the, I think a very clear economic question as well of how completely just destroyed our healthcare system is to be able to handle a situation like a pandemic. I mean, our healthcare system was already completely incapable of providing healthcare to uh, a lot of people, to uh, huge numbers of people um, very effectively at all, even before the pandemic. But now we have, you know, these public health, uh, public hospitals that have just been utterly defunded and, you know, practically destroyed, um, that, you know, all these, um, uh, hospitals where that are understaffed when it's clear that, you know, and, 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 and been scientifically proven that health outcomes are linked to staffing levels. Um, so, th- so that's part of it is, you know, how do, how would we have, effectively prepared ahead of time Hmm. to not have been in a situation that we are in right now. But then the other half of it is, you know, okay, once we're in the situation at whatever level of devastation it, it hits, how does society handle it? And, you know, I would, I would think that in a society, well, I, I know really that in a society that's not driven by profit, the decision-making is based on long, very different lines. So I was saying before, you know, for immediately in terms of allocation of resources, uh, that it would be, you know, all hands on deck around question of health outcomes and um, the, ba- the very bare bones infrastructure that needs to exist in order to provide um, essential services. You know, when in, in, when, when we've spoken, or not we've, but politicians have spoken about essential workers and needing to keep certain businesses um, open, even when, you know, at the, at the height of the crisis, it was what, is, what was deemed essential was really, was a very, um, you know, expansive definition. It included you know, construction of luxury condos in New York that was happening during, you know, the worst of the crisis. Um, but that we could actually think about the ver- this, the bare minimum of what actually needs to happen because for capitalism and for politicians and for, you know, 
state and city officials who are worried about state budgets and they need revenue from businesses in order to keep their state budgets afloat. The, the, um, you know, driving, uh, um, sort of looking for the, the things that drive their, their decision-making is, is needing to keep businesses profitable. And so keeping things closed for as, for as short a time as possible you know, in New York, when they've reopened the schools, I mean, not just in New York, but I, I can, I'm just speaking from my experience here. You know, they talked a good game about thinking about the education and the needs of children. But in reality, what was driving their decision making was that working parents need to get back to work. Hmm. And of course, working parents are desperate to get back to work because we need money. Um, but, but instead of just paying parental leave so that working parents can just stay home and take care of their children, the, the driving decision-making is to make sure that we get back to work so that businesses can keep turning a profit. And ironically, by have by doing that and by reopening schools so that parents can go back to work they've also now forced teachers who is a actually a huge workforce mm -hmm. and many of them are parents as well they've exacerbated the problem by now having more parents that have children that they now have to send to school which is really not safe hmm. so you know we we could in a social society limit the number of people that actually have to work to the smallest number possible. And then with those people, we could, first of all, you know, uh, rotate so that not, it's not just the same group of people that have to work for months during a pandemic, but rotate it. We could, we could take um, into account people's pre-existing health conditions and ages and so on to make sure that uh, the people that are most vulnerable are not in a position of having to work at all. And then for the few, the, the fewest possible number that were of people that actually have to work, then we could think about a workable childcare situation for them where there's the smallest number of students in a ideally outdoor space and if indoors in the biggest possible indoor space it's well ventilated mm -hmm. you know this is just completely not on the agenda at all under capitalism but i think painting a picture of what a different kind of society with different kind of priorities could do um i think makes it a lot clearer what the driving um what the driving priorities are for, for capitalism. Tia's book covers a lot more ground than we were able to travel during our conversation. The book is not only valuable to those of us wanting to understand Marx's theory of capitalism ourselves, but also to those of us wanting to educate others about this theory. Tia provides up-to-date examples throughout that can easily be adapted for specific audiences. 
The work of socialist education in the U.S. will be particularly important over the next few years during what may be a retreat from neoliberalism, at least in its most naked form. And if this retreat takes a benign, maybe even mildly social democratic guise, it will be especially important for socialists to emphasize the exploitation inherent in wage labor. We might join the struggles for a more progressive capitalism in the U.S. so that, for example, our children could continue going to school uh, during the next pandemic. But for us, this would be a pit stop at best on the road towards a radically different system of growing and distributing the fruits of our labor. Over the next few days before and after the November election, I'll be talking separately to Vivek Chibber and Cedric de Leon about class and politics in the U.S. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it 